Hey, if you're taking notes this morning, I'd like you to please write down what's in your hands. What's in your hands? Um, I'm, I'm continuing on in our, our series in generosity. Um, can, I, can I be honest and tell you that speaking about generosity is typically not one of the most popular subjects? Because what happens is, is the moment that a preacher starts talking about money, that old mindset comes in that, oh man, here comes the church always wanting my money. Can I tell you something? I don't want your money. Can I tell you another something? God doesn't need your money. I'm going to tell you one more something. God wants your heart. And it's attached to your money whether you like it or not. Oh, it's going to be one of those kinds of words. Okay, pastor. (laughs) See, last week, Pastor Jeff talked about generosity. He hit on Isaiah chapter 38, which states that a generous man devises generous things. Devises, which means he goes about thinking, he goes about planning as though he is going to be generous. How many of you know that going to the gym six weeks ago is not helping you today? Unless for the ensuing days you also went to the gym. Something that you did two years ago and stopped doing has no value to you today. You might be able to look back on that and say, wow, that was a really good thing that I did that one time. But ultimately, I've got to tell somebody that generosity is a lifestyle and a practice and a discipline. The trouble with the discipline is that it has to begin somewhere. You know, anybody who's ever worked in a gym knows that the two months that you're going to see the largest volume of people coming through are January and February. Typically, by the end of February, it's back to the normal crowd. Because everybody thinks, man, if I can just start something, I'll be able to finish it. If I can just get going, I'll be able to keep going. But anybody who's ever developed a discipline will tell you that the point of discipline is to develop desire. See, some of us, what we're doing is we are, we're, we're, we're asking God, Lord, help me to desire to be more generous. And I've got to tell you, it's discipline that creates desire. Discipline creates desire. The appetite you feed is the appetite you'll grow. I'm going to say it to this side of the room. The appetite that you feed is the appetite that you'll grow. See, these guys get it. You don't wake up one morning with a cultivated desire to give away your time, your gifting, and your money. Honest to God, I, I, I don't know that I had a particular moment where I woke up and said, you know what I want to do? I want to give away my hard-earned cash today. That sounds like an amazing idea. I was doing some research on some giving statistics and there's, in the United States, and I came across one that was kind of staggering. I want you to listen to this. Christians today, by and large, give about 2.5% of their income. Listen to this next part, though. In the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Christians gave more to the church and to charity when we had a 25% unemployment rate than we do today. Statistically speaking, in any given church... 25 to 30% of, of people that, that attend on a regular basis give. About 10% of that number tithe. 
Now, here's what, again, what I'm not doing. I'm not trying to shame you into giving. I'm trying to remind you that if Jesus spoke about giving 30% of the time, we should start listening when we hear giving. And the reason, again, is not because we need the lights to stay on. The reason is because there is probably no other product, there's no other thing out there that holds the attention of man quite so easily as money. It's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He didn't say, where your heart is, that's where you'll send your money. No, he said, actually, you're proving what you love by what you spend your money on. Listen to this. This is Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Moses answered, what if they won't believe me? And will not obey me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. Okay, okay. <laughs> I want you to come with me for a second in this particular narrative. So Moses, I want you to understand, this is the staff that Moses had been carrying around as a shepherd for 40 years. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not as, uh, I feel like in the last few years I've become slightly more clumsy than I used to be. But I'm telling you, a staff that you've carried around for 40 years, you're going to drop a few times. Now, I want you to imagine that the moment that God told him to throw it on the ground, it became a snake. Now, there might be some, like, strange people in here that you just love snakes. But the rest of us would have reacted exactly like Moses. And then the next thing God tells him to do is go ahead and grab the snake by the tail. Okay, I grew up in rattlesnake country. You do not grab the snake by the tail. Okay, like you put your foot on its neck and then you kill it with the shovel. Okay, that is what God asked Moses to do was not the was was not the the right way of doing things. Okay, then he says, so he stretched out his hand and he caught it and became a staff in his hand. He said, this will take place. He continued so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. What's in your hand, coupled with obedience, has enormous power. What's in your hand, coupled with obedience, has enormous power. See, the intimidating thing about generosity and giving is believing that you don't have the capacity to give. Much like the inadequacy of feeling like you may not be in good enough shape yet to be seen at the gym. You realize that's one of the reasons why people don't go to the gym. It's called gym intimidation. Because you don't feel like you're swole enough yet to go to the gym. And yet, if you don't go to the gym, you'll never get swole. Like, if you don't work out, you'll never look better, right? See, in many ways, though, what we've done is we have convinced ourselves, oh, pastor, I just don't have... I don't have the money. I don't have the margin to give right now. Friend, I got to tell you, if you don't have the margin to give now, you'll never have the margin to give. My dad forced me to tithe when I was a kid. (laughs) And I tell you, you know, it's funny. I was was thinking about my first weekly allowance. Somebody shout out to me what your weekly allowance is. 
Zero. Somebody who works for a living. A child. Someone that's living in their parents' house. Zero. Okay, that's good for you. My first weekly allowance, $2. $2. And I tell you, you know what my, what my parents did was when they started giving us an allowance, they also opened up a savings account for us. And as a kid, getting $2 a week and having 10 cents go into the savings account and 10 cents go into the offering plate, I remember thinking to myself, this is a lot of money. You're taking like 20%. But see, the thing is, is if I had never learned to tithe off the small thing that I had, I'd never be able to dream about tithing off what I have now. That's why it's by percentage. It's because no matter what you make, at some point in time, you can still prove yourself generous. If you don't work it out now, you're going to have a hard time in the field. Let me put this to you this way. I've heard people say things like, well, pastor, every time that, uh, you know, every time that Powerball gets up to 40 million, I buy a ticket. And I tell the Lord... I'm going to build us a new church if I win this. But to be honest with you, if you haven't learned how to tithe on 50,000 a year, you're not going to tithe on 5 million. If $5,000 a year looks big to you, wait till you're making $100,000 a year. How, how, much, how much is 10,000 going to look like? Do you see where I'm going with this? See, as a believer, our whole point, our whole focus when we think about generosity and, and I'm going to tell you, I do not, we do not teach the prosperity gospel here, by the way. I know that like when, when, when people come into the church, especially the charismatic church, because there are so many places that tend to preach and teach the idea that if you give, God will bless you with all sorts of stuff. It's kind of, unfortunately, it's a, it's a bit pervasive in the charismatic church. But what I can tell you is that the Bible emphatically teaches that when you give, God increases. See, the Bible doesn't teach, oh man, the Bible, is everybody in the room adequately aware that life is unfair? Like, you get that? The Bible does not teach fairness, nor does it teach prosperity. It actually teaches capacity and stewardship. I'm going to prove it to you. We're going to go right now, we're going to go to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Starting in verse 14, this is, the, uh, uh, this is the, the, the parable of the talents. And it says, for it's just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent. Listen, depending on one's ability. We're going to come back to that, but I'm going to read this whole, this whole grip of scripture. We're going to come back to that little, that little point right there. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who received five talents went, he put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached and presented five more. And the master said, or said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share now your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more. 
His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, master, I know you. Isn't it interesting that the guy who did it wrong knew better? You see where I'm going with this? See, the other guys just did what the master asked them to do. This guy was like, listen, man, I know you. So here's what I did. The exact opposite of what you told me to do. <laughs> master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is now yours. His master replied to him, man, you were so right, dude. <sighs> Mind-blowing how well you know me. No, I'm sorry, that's not what he said. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew where, that, that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So, listen to this. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Boy, that was cheery. <laughs> you see what I was talking about where the Bible doesn't teach fairness? See, because even in my mind, it would have been a lot more fair for the master to give the one talent to the guy with the two, right? But instead, he gave it to the highest earner. Because the Bible doesn't teach fairness. It teaches capacity. We're going to go back to this, this verse here. In, in reading in, in, uh, in, in verse 15, it says, To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. This is your weekly reminder that God knows you more than you know yourself. He knows you a lot better than you know you. My oldest son right now believes that life is unfair in our household. And it's because as the oldest, he has a few, and I'm a, a few, okay? A few more chores that he has to do than his younger siblings. Can I tell you why he has more chores than they do? Because he's stronger and he's taller. The other day, I mean an absolute milestone in the Eklund household, Alec was able to grab something off the top of the fridge without a, like without a chair or a booster. And my entire system of storage and hiding things changed in a moment. It's all, it's all out in the open now. He knows where all the stuff is. I ask him to do things that I don't ask his younger siblings to do because I understand his capacity better than he does. See, some of us are telling God, God, if you would just get me that raise, God, if you would just help me to do this, God, if you would just do that for me, then I will become more generous. Then I'll give. What I can tell you right now, let's not be like the guy with one talent who kept complaining about the fact he only had one. Your job as a believer when it comes to your finances isn't to constantly be moaning the fact that you don't have more. Our responsibility is to steward what we have and be content with it.
Oh, someone, and be content with it. See, as a father, I don't want to set up my son for failure. I don't want to give him a task where I'm saying, hey, uh, Alec, why don't you go run down to the store and pick up a gallon of milk for me? Just go ahead and take the car. Because if I gave him that task and I gave him that vehicle, he would very likely crash. Is that, would that then be my fault or would it be his fault? Probably it would be my fault in that sense because I was trying to have him do something that he did not have the ability to do. Let me put it to you this way. If you're wondering why your finances never change, and there are a lot of different factors here, so I don't want to like, you know, put a blanket statement and say you're just not ready. But if you're wondering why your finances aren't changing, but you're not changing the way that you spend money, that's why your finances aren't changing. Your capacity hasn't grown yet. Everybody okay? There's a little bit less air in the room than there was before. See, even in the Old Testament, when Moses was tasked with the assembling of the people of Israel into military formations, he set some as captains of ten and some as captains of a thousand. Can you imagine, like, finding out, like, AJ, you've been, you've been selected to be a captain of a thousand. Jordan, you've been selected to be a captain of ten. I mean, just imagine like, you know, like the thought process when you find out that for almost no apparent reason, AJ got a thousand guys and you got ten. How easy would it be to just complain to the ten guys that you are leading that you should be leading at least a hundred guys? Look at me. Look at my capacity. Look at my shoulders. You know what? Bench press 300 pounds. I should be over at least a hundred dudes. Or you could just take the 10 that he gave you and lead them well. You could take the finances that God has given you and steward them well. It is a lot easier to complain than steward. Listen, the truth is you have been given a command. Be generous. And... What's more, you've also been given a start. It's what's in your hands. You notice that Moses, when God, when God commissioned him to do something he'd never done before, he didn't give him a tool that he didn't, re- he didn't understand. He just empowered it differently. He didn't hand him a chainsaw and say, check this baby out. He said, what's he, what do you got? Well, I got this well-worn staff. Okay, well, now I'm going to empower it because I've given you a command. God has given us a command, and he's given us a start. I'm just going to give you a few benefits of giving this morning. I, this is kind of a shorter word. We have some, we have some other stuff going on in the, in the, uh, in the service today, but I, I didn't want to, on one hand, I don't want to hammer you over the head with this, but I want to remind you that whenever God gives a command, there's always a blessing. Okay? The first one is this. You're, pro- you're proclaiming your allegiance. You're proclaiming your allegiance. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
You cannot serve both God and money. Listen, I got to tell somebody that generosity is countercultural. You know, even that statistic that I was reading earlier talking about how, you know, Christians only give about 2.5% of, their, of their, their, their overall wealth. Even as small as that seems to most of us that have grown up in the church, that is significantly more than any other people group in the entire world. Christians give more per capita than any other people. We are, by, we are by and large, the most generous, ideological, religious structure on the face of the earth, and we always have been. The vast majority of either government or privatized firms that actually go about helping people were started by churches. They were started by Christians. We wouldn't have hospitals today without Christianity. But see, what happens is, is that on a, so on a macro level, on a, on, a, on a big picture statement, it's easy to say, well, we're very generous. But the truth is, is that every time that I give, I'm telling my wallet that it doesn't own me. Every time that I give to the Lord, I'm sounding a trumpet in my home that says that my entertainment does not own me. Says that my appetite doesn't own me. My mortgage doesn't own me. My car payment doesn't own me. My kid's soccer practice doesn't own me. It kind of does. It's pretty expensive. My wealth doesn't own me. And listen up, my poverty does not own me. I don't serve money. It serves me. See, money makes an incredible tool, but a terrible, terrible God. Anything that you have to ask permission from before you say yes to the Lord is an idol. I'm going to say it one more time because I want, you to, I want you to think about this. Anything that you have to ask permission from before you say yes to the Lord is an idol. And money is so easy to worship. Because we live in a culture that by and large worships money. Because it's funny, the American dream, by and large, when we think about it, it's about family, but it's also about wealthy family. It's about having all the nice things in life. Now, none of these things are patently bad. Unless having the nice things is keeping you from obedience. And if it is, it's not the American dream, it's an idol. Number two, you're advancing the kingdom of God. Listen to this. This is Luke 8, 1 to 3. Afterward, he was traveling. This is about Jesus, by the way. Afterward, he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, called Magdalene, seven demons had come out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. Listen, I don't know exactly what the currency system of heaven will be. I just know that there will be one. Since what we see in the prophetic language of the new heavens and the new earth is a society perfected. Which means the new heavens and the new earth is not going to be socialistic. It's not going to be a communistic system. There's going to be an actual society where you actually do things. For those of you who are expecting to be on a cloud playing a harp, this is a brutal Sunday for you. Okay? 
see, the truth is, whether you're retired or not, you were born to work. You were born to partner with your father in the work of ministry, and you always will. Even when he has come and he has righted every wrong and when he has dried every tear, there is still going to be toil because we were born for it. That's why retirement, by and large, can sometimes have such an ill effect on people. I'm not saying don't retire, by the way. But many times people don't know what to do with themselves. One of the most dangerous times for people is the two years, the two years right after retirement. When I'm down here, I know that money is still necessary for the ministration of the gospel. This is a fact. Every, every missionary in the world knows that we don't just survive on God juice. We live, we, live in a, we live in a world that requires money. Listen, if I stubbornly, if I went to a foreign country today and I stubbornly refused to use their currency because I just think that the American dollar is the best thing in the entire world and if you don't want it, I don't know what's wrong with you, okay? Like if I just stubbornly refused to turn my currency into the currency that they actually use, there are going to be a lot of things that I cannot do and cannot see because I will not buy into the system that is already in place. Money is required for the ministry of the gospel. When we invest in the kingdom of God and his church, we are partnering together in the work of ministry. From local missions, to counseling, to foreign missions, to church services, every time that we give to the Lord, we are advancing the kingdom of God. Many of you were here uh, last week. We had a a friend of the house and Dan and Yvonne Harding were, were here. They gave just a really brief, uh, a really brief presentation of their ministry. And uh, we did like an open Bible offering at the end of both services for them. I don't know what I was expecting, but can I tell you how much we gave them? $7,000. $7,000, guys. And here's the thing. See... If you don't know much about Dan and Yvonne's ministry, it's like, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. That's awesome. Good for them. But see, when I heard that figure, because I've been there and I've, I've ministered with Dan and Yvonne, I saw faces. I saw people that have been positively impacted by their ministry. You want to know what, like, the, 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 the smile village that they, that they, that they built is a, basically a village for single moms. The reason it's necessary is because... Single mothers in Zimbabwe are looked at as second-class citizens. They don't get work. They don't get remarried. They don't get love. They don't have empowerment. People tend to see single mothers as broken or failed people. Dan's ministry is to raise these women up, is to love them, is to show them Jesus, and to train them how to be members of society in a society that doesn't want them. And the thing is, you did that. You see, you see where I'm going with this? See, when we partner together, their victory is our victory. I may not be able to be there all the time, but I can ensure that they're there all the time. When you, see, when you hear about somebody getting saved in our church services, you helped with that. You may not be able to be on this stage all the time, but by giving, you're helping our pastors be on this stage to preach the gospel. 
Do you understand where I'm going with this? We are partnering together when we invest in the kingdom of God and his church. I want you to imagine for, the mo- for a moment the many moments in scripture that we would not have seen if instead of having impromptu encounters with massive crowds of people, Jesus had to check out Monday morning for ministry that so-, so he could build chairs and tables instead of flipping them over in the temple. Can you imagine that? Like a part-time Jesus? The guy that, you know, the guy that preached to the crowd and then was like, oh, geez, guys, I got to work in the morning. Sorry. The fact that we have all of these moments written down is because of these women that actually supported his ministry. Listen, understand that Jesus didn't live on fairy dust. As the God-man, his body still needed the requisite materials that we all do in order to survive. Put simply, if no one gave to his ministry, his ministry wouldn't have existed. Do you understand the kind of trust that God put in people that he didn't send Jesus down to a rich family. He sent, it down to, he sent him down to a family in poverty. His trust was that people were going to see what Jesus was doing and want to give to it because they wanted to partner. They wanted him to keep going. They wanted him to, talk, to, to keep talking, to keep healing, to keep raising the dead, to keep baptizing people. They wanted to see what he would do next. And so they, were, they, they ensured from their own, their own possessions that they would do everything in their power to make sure that he never had to work a nine to five. By the way, that is not in any way demeaning a nine to five. My point is, my point is, is that sometimes that we, we, we tend to forget that when we are giving to God's kingdom, we are partnering in the work of the people that we are giving to. Their victories are your victories. Matthew 6, 20 and 21. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Number three, you're determining your reward. You're determining your reward. I'm gonna gonna jump to Luke chapter 19. This is kind of a parallel uh, to to the parable of the talents. This is the parable of the meanest. I'm only gonna read the last part of it because we don't quite have enough time to go into the whole thing, but it says, at his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given money to so that he could find out how much they made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very small, t- small matter. This is, okay, so in, in the parable of the talents, this is where I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to focus in real quick. The parable of the talents, the focus was on what they did with the money. In the parable of the minas, the focus is what they received in return. So the first focus was on what they did. The second parable is about what they received. Listen, well done, good servant, he told him, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. (laughs) Okay, we're going to come back to that. This isn't hitting people the same way it's hitting me. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. And so he said to him, you will be over five towns. The reward system of heaven works a lot different than we think it does. It works a lot different than we think it does. The point here is that when I invest, 
What I invest in the now actually has real bearing on, on what I receive when he returns. I need somebody in the house to know that what you get when Jesus comes back is not going to be fair. It's going to be just. See, we'll all inherit eternal life, but beyond that, our inheritance depends on what we've invested here. Which means that there are going to be some of us You know, Jesus actually said it this way. He said, there are going to be some that are going to basically escape a house, that like escape like a house on fire, and they're going to enter into the kingdom with nothing else. Still better than having burned alive in the fire, yes? But the truth is, is that what you do with what you have, with what is in your hands right now, is going to determine what you receive for eternity. And look at this. Because you have to understand, this parable is is a string of parables in which Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. So what is he saying? When he's talking about the master returning, he's not saying that like at some ephemeral time, the master is going to call you into a God. No, it's, it's talking about when he returns in his second coming and he rights every wrong. Most of us understand the value of investing for our future because we see a definitive ending point for our workplace life. Like we think to ourselves, man, 67 is coming a lot quicker than I think. I got to really get serious. Friend, the end of your life is coming a lot quicker than you think. Maybe you should get serious about investing in what's after you die. Because I got to be honest with somebody in the room. It's going to be significantly longer than what you have here. I'm not saying don't invest in your future. I'm not saying don't save up for retirement. I'm saying remind yourself that this period of time that we've got, it's a vapor. (laughs) Sometimes we often don't make the connection between an eternal dwelling place and what we give in the here and now. You know, I can be honest and say that I don't know entirely what it means that we are storing up treasure in heaven. Can I be honest and say that with you? Like, I don't have a definitive, like, answer that says, if you give A, B, and C, you're going to receive, you know, this. I don't know what that means, that we're laying treasures up in heaven, but I trust that Jesus knows how to invest what I give him. picture that's being painted here in this parable is almost a completely unequivocal result imagine if you were really good with your finances and somebody showed up at your house one day and said hey would you like to be the president turns out the last guy was really bad with with the finances we think you're really good would you like to be the president do you understand how ridiculous this comparison is and yet that's the parable of Minas. if i can trust I, i want you to really consider that this particular verse has a lot more power than we think it does. You have been faithful in the small things. Now I'm going to make you the master of 10 cities. I mean, that is really a small thing. 10 minas, you guys want to know how much, how much money that is? It's about 20 days wages-ish. He took 20 days wages, turned it into 40 days wages. 
And his master said, you know what? I think I can trust you over 10 towns. Wait, what? (laughs) Somebody needs to remind yourself, your reward, what you receive, when you go to be with Jesus, is going to depend on what you decide to do with what's in your hands today. See, sometimes it's so, it's so much easier. Can I just tell you, it is so much easier for me as a, as, a, as a preacher to talk to you about the benefits in the here and now because most people don't have an eternal perspective. We like the idea that we're saved, whatever that means. But so often, so many giving messages are so much about, well, if you just give, God's going to increase you, which he will. Or if you just give, God's going to do this, which he probably will. But actually, the better thing for me to remind you of is that what you do with what is in your hands is going to determine what your eternity looks like. I'm going to end by giving a quote from Charles Spurgeon because he's just a lot smarter than I am. And and I've always loved Spurgeon's perspective on giving and tithing. And he said this. He said, yet this absence of law and rule does not mean that you are therefore to give less than the Jews did, but rather that you shall give more. Because if I rightly understand what is implied in the term Christian liberality, it is to be according to the example of Christ himself. Our text really gives the Christian law of liberty for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might be rich that is to say that we should give as we love that we come on that we give as we love you know how much our Lord Jesus Christ loved by knowing how much he gave he gave himself for us because he loved us with all the force and energy of his nature. Why did that woman break the alabaster box and pour the precious ointment upon Christ's head when it might have been sold for much and the money given to the poor or when she might have kept her ointment for herself? She gave much because she loved much. Therefore, I commend to you this rule. Give as you love and measure your love by your gift. Give as you love and measure your love by your gift. I know it is not always easy to be generous. If it was easy, everybody would do it. If the gym was easy, everybody would go. If getting in shape was easy, everybody would be slim. But any discipline worth having is worth experiencing pain so that you can experience the pleasure. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that our generosity is not seated in our ability. Our generosity is not seated in anything except what we have seen you do for us, which is that you have given everything. You have given everything. Everything that we have is a result of your grace. Everything that we possess is a result of your grace. Our righteousness is not because of our behavior. It's because of you and what you gave. So Lord, I pray this morning 
that we would be a people who are determined to live with a generous spirit, to give in the measure that we love. I want to, I just want to speak to one person real quick. Nobody's looking around. I just, I want somebody in the room to know that God's generosity towards you is primarily shown in what he has already accomplished, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Listen, I don't have to convince you that you're a sinner. Number one, the Holy Spirit's already doing that. Secondly, I don't have to convince you because you already know who you are on the inside. What I can tell you is that what Jesus has done for you is that he has eliminated the necessity of you to be perfect. He was perfect on your behalf. He was sacrificed on your behalf. He was raised on your behalf. And now he rules over all creation. And all you have to do to step into this life with Jesus is say, Lord, I give up. I give over. Forgive me of my sin. I want to be a child of God. If that's you this morning, if you've never prayed that prayer, you've never, if you've never made that statement, or, or maybe you did, but you realize that at some point in your life you walked away from the Lord, and today's the day to return to him. If that's you this morning, if that's you this morning, and you want to come to Jesus, you want to come to the generous kingdom, you want to come to this generous heart, this generous man, this generous God, if that's you this morning, I want you to raise your hand. I'd like to pray with you. Is there anybody in the house today? You're saying, Pastor Joel, that's me. I I need to come to Jesus today. Is there anybody in the house today? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your grace. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet you give it all the more because we don't deserve it and because we couldn't earn it. God, I pray over this people this morning. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your generosity. And we are determined to be a people that show your generosity. It's in your good name we pray. Amen.